Please open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 13. The beast, the antichrist, the false prophet, the mark, 666, one world government, and one world currency. Last fall, when we asked you questions that you had about Revelation, 80% of your questions were about this stuff. And today's chapter is the chapter that contains all of it. So this is going to be interesting. Uh, today, um, let's see, i to find my notes. Last week, we studied chapter 12. And in chapter 12, uh, we saw that John once again has a series of visions, and this time the visions involve a woman and a dragon. The dragon tries to kill the woman's son, but fails. And in a parallel vision, the dragon is in war in heaven with the archangel Michael and loses. And he's thrown out of heaven and onto the earth, where now on the earth in anger, he goes to make war with the rest of the women's children. We learned that the woman represents Israel, from whom the Messiah Jesus came out of the nation of Israel. The dragon, who represents the devil, Satan, failed in his attempt to kill the Messiah. It's interesting because he actually did succeed in that, didn't he? But he failed in that killing in that Jesus was resurrected and actually did accomplish his mission. In fact, it was the death and resurrection of Jesus that is the very thing that broke the power of the devil. And so now he roams the earth, making war on the rest of the woman's offspring, which the woman's offspring, symbol for us, the church. The message is something like this, Satan wages war on God's people on earth because he has been ultimately defeated. We learned that the way God's people conquer the dragon, last week we learned that the way God's people conquer the dragon and overcome his onslaught, his attacks, his war against us is through, it says, through the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, we conquer by clinging to faith in the gospel message trusting Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the sufficient power that saves us from our sin, breaks the power of the devil, and marks us out as God's people who will be saved, and so we inherit eternal life. That's how we conquer. So today, we get to meet the other two members of the false trinity, the beasts. Last week told us that the dragon makes war on the offspring of the woman. This week, John, in this revelation, shows us how he makes war on the offspring of the woman. And he does, does that through two beasts. Today's passage, we get to see that John records a vision that he was given. And this vision reveals, doesn't hide or encode, it reveals to Jesus' church, who their enemy is and why we suffer, why we experience persecution and opposition. What he's doing is he's pulling back the curtain on the spiritual realm and showing us that all the political powers and ideologies that line themselves up against us in the world out there do so because we have an enemy, a dragon, the dragon, the devil, and he is furious with us. Because he's lost the war for our souls. So now he's trying to make our lives miserable. 
and scare us into fearing him and his message, trying to intimidate us that maybe we might give up the faith or give up this, this life of suffering and endurance because it's just too tough and too scary. And today we're going to see that these political powers and these ideologies that are lined up against Jesus' church are symbolized by two beasts, and let's meet the first one. I'm calling this one the sea beast because he comes from the sea. Let's look at Revelation 13, verse 1. Actually, I'm going to back up a verse. I think there's a bad chapter break here, but I know why they did it. The dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had... Ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Try to draw that. That'd be interesting. The dragon gave the beast his power, his authority, and great, his throne, and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. And we'll stop here. This chapter, by the way, is not the only place in the Bible we meet this beast. He's also mentioned in Revelation chapter 17. And if we're going to get a good idea of who this beast is, we'll look there and we also need Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And if we do that, we actually can get a pretty clear picture of what's going on with this beast and all of his horns and heads and crowns and stuff. So I'm going to read, let's go to, let's actually flip there with me, John, Revelation 17. I'm going to fast forward. And in Revelation 17, John sees yet another vision. In this vision, he sees a vision of a prostitute or a harlot or a whore. The, the word there means kind of that, that uh, realm of things. Um, and the, the prostitute is described as seated on many waters and riding on a scarlet beast, which, by the way, is the same beast that we read about here in Revelation 13. And here's the angel's explanation of the woman in the scarlet beast. I'm just going to cut to the chase, and here's the angel's explanation of the woman and the scarlet beast. And the angel says, verse 7, the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. So here we go. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and to go to destruction. 
So that's an important fact about the beast. Those who live on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, there it is, that book again, they will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. So here we see that the seven heads of the beast represent two different things. And it would have been clear to the readers that the seven mountains was a very famous name for the city of Rome, just like if I say the Big Apple, we all know I'm talking about New York City. If I talk about Sin City, I'm talking about Las Vegas. The city that was on the seven hills was Rome. We know that still today. So the heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Here's the interesting thing about these seven kings. Five of them are in the past. Five of them have fallen. One is still living in John's day. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for only a little while. The beast that was and is not is itself an eighth king. But it belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. And don't worry, we're going to sort this all out in a little bit. Now, here's, here's more, more kings. The ten horns you saw are ten kings, which have not yet received a kingdom, so ten future kings. But they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These all have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the lamb. But the lamb will conquer them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. He also said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So, we have a glossary of definitions in Revelation 17 for the stuff we see in Revelation 13. We get a clear picture, I think, and this is going to get deep pretty quick. So I'm going to put some stuff up on the screen. Hang with me. Take notes as you need to. So first we see that this beast comes up from out of the sea. The sea here is the same image, I think, as the waters on which the prostitute is seated. And we're told in Revelation 17 that the water represents many peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. In other words, this beast is seated everywhere or can be seed, can come from anywhere. Maybe even you could say this beast is seated in a lot of places. To John's original audience, I think, too, the, where the, the uh, seven churches that this letter is to, where they were situated, and I think even the, the church um, in Israel during that time frame, they would have perceived this, uh, this, this, sea, this um, beast coming from across the sea or from out of the sea, would have probably sparked an image of Rome. Rome was seated, was, they lived across the Mediterranean Sea. From their perspective, Rome was a, across the sea. So this sea represents peoples, multitudes, nations, languages, and probably had a little flavor of Rome to it. Now what's going on with the leopard, bear, and lion? Try to draw a seven-headed beast that's like a leopard that has a singular mouth like a lion. The whole beast has one mouth like a lion. I don't know what to do with that. 
And on seven heads, there's ten horns. It doesn't say how they're divided out. And on those horns are crowns. What's going on with this? Well, these images are taken from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel, each beast, uh, there's a beast that's like a leopard, there's a beast that's like a bear, there's a beast that's like a lion, and there's a beast that's not like any of the other beasts. So there's four beasts. And these images, John is taking those four and kind of rolling them into one. Each of those beasts represented a king. So what we have is so far, we have this one beast represents four kings. I think what he's doing with Daniel is he's saying the thing that Daniel was talking about, which by the way, the prophecies of Daniel we take to lead up to the coming of Christ and then the destruction of the temple. He's saying it's going to be like that. It's kind of like that. So these seven heads, sorry, that was the four heads representing four kings. And this idea of multiple kings is reinforced also by the other imagery, seven heads. We saw from Revelation seven heads that the seven, the seven heads are seven, I don't know, seven more kings. Also seven kings. Five of them are in the past from the perspective of John. One of them is in the present day from the perspective of John and his original audience. And one is still in the future. How far in the future? He doesn't say. It's possible that it's still in the future for us. And it's possible that it's in the past for us. We don't know. The point is that these seven heads represent seven more kings, past, present, and future. And now we have ten horns. Ten horns are also ten more kings. Still in the future for John. We don't know from our perspective if it's still in the future or not. And it says that these kings, they all have the same purpose. Their purpose is to give their glory to the beast and to make war against the lamb. It also says they only reign for an hour. So we got a question yesterday morning at the seminar. Is that like a literal period of time? And our response from all of the pastors, we agree, we don't think so. We just think it means a short period of time. Lesser kings reigning for shorter periods of time. So, so far the beast represents four kings. He represents seven kings, past, present, and future. And he represents ten lesser kings, still future for John. Don't know for us. So what my point is, these kings represent political and military powers, past, present, and future, and this beast, they're all rolled into this vision of this, this image of this beast, which apparently transcends time in some way. The beast itself, we're told in Revelation 17, the whole picture, this, this, uh, this combination sort of beast, also, it says, this one represents a king who was, meaning he used to be, he is not, meaning he wasn't around during John's day, and he is yet to come, so he's coming back somehow. That's interesting. So what am I, what's going on with this beast? Well, the, most or the least that I can say is that this is not a simple image. In one sense, it seems to represent a future individual. That's a mainstream line of thought. This is an individual, a second coming of something that apparently previously existed. And in another sense, this beast seems to represent, uh, seems to exist throughout time, past, present, and future, and refer to multiple people. This beast seems to be some sort of demonic megazord, if you're familiar with that Power Rangers thing. Or Voltron, if you're familiar with Voltron. It's 
like this beast is like, I don't know how many were there, 18, 19 total? What's, what is it? Four plus, it doesn't matter. All of these kings like combined into one thing, being really scary. Rolls together all these multiple kings, past, present, and future, and frames it as a single entity, a single image. Another thing we see about this beast is that he is a counterfeit Christ. Some of the other details here. One of the heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but then it was declared to be healed. It's often taken as a, as a false resurrection. He's trying to act like Jesus. It says blasphemies were written on the seven heads. Blasphemous names were written on the seven heads as a contrast to the name written on Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation 19. And I just imagine that that name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, written on anyone else would be blasphemy. So they're trying to counterfeit Jesus. It could be that these kings declared themselves to be God. And in fact, we know that seven of the Roman emperors did that. As have others throughout the ages. Blasphemous names, meaning God. I'm God. That's blasphemy. The other thing they do is they utter blasphemies against God and his people. Perhaps calling God demonic or evil, calling Christians deceived, blasphemies. They utter blasphemies against God and his people in contrast to the words of truth spoken by Christ. This is a counterfeit Christ. This is an anti-Christ. The anti-Christ. And that's why this is a confusing and complex image, and there's been so much debate about this beast over the years. It seems to refer to a single person, and it also seems to refer to multiple people. And it seems that way because that's precisely what John is doing. John has previously told us in his first epistle that there is an Antichrist coming. But there are also many Antichrists already at work in the first century in John's day when he was writing and all throughout history. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Muhammad should have listened to this verse, as should Joseph Smith. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Paul makes a very similar point about the man of lawlessness coming and a mystery of lawlessness already at work. We understand that the man of lawlessness is the same person as the Antichrist, is the same person as the beast referred to in Revelation. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll put it up on the screen here. The day will come. Uh, so, that day, so Paul is con comforting people. Uh, the Thessalonian church had been told that the second coming already happened and you missed it. That's what's going on in Second Thessalonians. And Paul said, no, 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 no. That day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. 
the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in the temple or in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God, blasphemous names. And then skip to verse 7. So he says that this man of lawlessness has yet to be revealed. And then he says, verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until... Until he, the restrainer, is out of the way, then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. That's good news. So here's what I want to say. The beast that comes from the sea, he's a composite image, symbolizing kings, political and military powers, past, present, and future who oppose Jesus and God's people. It's an image of political and military power carrying out the dragon's bidding. You see, the dragon is the one that gives him the authority. This image does include, I think, a future final beast king, Antichrist, capital A. But it also entails beast kings throughout the ages. That's why there's so much confusion about the identity. That's why it seems like in every generation we can point to somebody and go, that, that, mm, he seems to fit the bill. Throughout the 2,000 years of Christian experience, we just need to point back a couple decades to Hitler. He's easy. We can point to current people. Let the reader understand. And we can point to people in 1000 AD and we can point to people in 500 AD and we can point to people in the first century where he wrote this and we can go back into the Old Testament and see rulers who were opposed to God's people being called beasts. Nebuchadnezzar was one of them. The Babylon. We're going to move on to the land beast. And by the way, in here was the verse that people derived the idea of one world government from. And if you didn't catch it, that's okay because I think it's kind of a stretch. Let's meet the third member of the false trinity, the land beast. I think um, probably not a lot of people have heard of the sea beast and the land beast. They've heard of the beast and the false prophet. Well, that's who we're meeting here. In one sense, you could say this is the third member of the false trinity. And in one sense, you might say he's a counterfeit Holy Spirit. The beast, the Antichrist, is a counterfeit Christ. This one seems to be like a counterfeit Holy Spirit. It's called the false prophet in Revelation 19. And mercifully, this is a much shorter section than the last one. Let's read Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beef on its beh- beast on its behalf. It must be hungry for lunch. <laughs> and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven in, on, onto the earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it was permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Let's pause here. Let's look at this. He does one more thing. We'll get to that in a second. This beast looks like a lamb and talks like a dragon. 
Who's the dragon? Satan. Again with the counterfeiting. The second beast fools people into thinking that it is great and powerful and wonderful because of the great signs and wonders it performs. It lies and deceives people and tricks them into worshiping the first beast. It fools them into thinking that there is something about this mighty-looking beast that is worthy of worship. I want to notice here, too, that unlike the first beast, the second one is not specifically identified as a king or really as any individual person, though it is referred to as the false prophet in chapter 19. It may be, so here it is, maybe, that there is going to be an individual who embodies all the things done here, but it is also likely that we're looking like with the first beast as a symbol for something the Bible calls the spirit of the age or ideology that is opposed to the true Christ and tries to draw people away from, to worship false gods. Christ warned us about this. In his section, uh, in his sermon called the Olivet Discourse, where he gives us insight into the end times, Matthew 24, verse 11, he says, Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness, there's that word again, will multiply. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think you could see here. A repetition of the message of Revelation. So just like with the final false prophet, the, fi- the final antichrist, final beasts, and many already in the world, you have the final false prophet and many false prophets rising up to deceive the world. Here again, here again Jesus calls us to persevere, to conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. I think that we're seeing here, what we're seeing here is that the false prophet is an image symbolizing teachers of ideologies opposed to D- Jesus' teaching. These teachers, and they might be university professors, they might be cultural commentators, they might be newscasters, they might be governing officials, they might be pastors or so-called pastors. They might be other kinds of religious leaders. These teachers give ideas to the beast or to the political and military powers, the kings, and move it to act on their destructive teachings. And these teachers, I think, do, like with the Antichrist, they do include the final false prophet, but they also exist throughout history, just like Jesus says. So finally, we're going to come to the last thing this beast does, the thing that we're also curious about, the mark of the beast. Let's take a look. Verse 15. I'm sorry, 16. It, the false prophet, it makes everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on its right hand or on its forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. I know we have the numerals in our Bible, but in the Greek it's spelled out 
They could have used Greek characters to symbolize numerals, but they did not. They spelled out, John spelled out, 666. What is this mark? Well, let me tell you. Is it going to be a literal stamp on our forehead or on our hand? Is it a microchip that gets embedded in your wrist? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, look, if someone tries to put a stamp on your forehead or on your wrist saying, worship this beast, worship this king, this governing authority, don't do it. Is that clear enough application for the morning? <laughs> don't get the mark. You want, here's the other thing I want to say to that, because I think there's some fear about this. You can't accidentally get the mark. It's an act of worship to the beast. Whatever it is. But my hunch that the mark here, like every other mark in Revelation, is symbolic for something. In fact, I'm fairly confident it's intentionally contrasted with the other two marks found in the Bible. There's one in Deuteronomy 6.8 where they were to bind God's word as a sign on their hand and a symbol on their forehead. If you want to read the rest of that passage later. I think the other mark that this mark here in chapter 13 is contrasted with is the mark in the very next verse. This mark is a counterfeit or an imitation of the seal of the Lamb in chapter 14. But I wonder if this mark is particularly scary to us in modern day Western, the modern-day West, affluent America. I'll be honest, theologians haven't made a big deal about the mark until about the mid-1800s. I wonder if this passage is especially scary for us here because it hits us right in the wallet. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Uh-oh. We Americans are really good at buying and selling, aren't we? Can you imagine being excluded from the current economic system? Likely fired from your job. Not being able to use Amazon.com or Apple products. Hellish nightmare. What if you can't go to Walmart or Fairway unless you receive some sort of mark? Fairway will probably go under first, but that's, you know. <laughs> that seems like a, kind of a distant, far-off reality, doesn't it? It seems like some weird sci-fi future. It would not have seemed that way to the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna was known for being poor, yet they are very rich. Christians in the first century were excluded from the economic system because they refused to pay homage to the pagan idols. Maybe this passage is a challenge to us in the same way that Jesus challenged the rich young ruler. You've got lots of things right, one thing you lack, sell everything you own and follow me. 
The question for us today about this mark, whatever it is, is not got to watch out for it so we don't accidentally get it. The question for us is more like, would we rather worship the beast so we can go on shopping at Walmart if it came to that? Or would we rather follow Christ wherever he goes? Jesus' encouragement in Matthew 6 seems very important to me here. Verse 31, don't worry. Jesus said, because the thing about the mark is that we're all worried, right? Don't worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? The Gentiles eagerly seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. The woman in chapter 12 flees to the wilderness where she is nourished, just like the Israelites wandered in the desert and were provided for in a place they couldn't grow crops. They will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think that's the message of the mark for us. But what about the number? We got some time. This will be fun. 666. Here's the thing. No one knows what this is. Is that all right? Is, that, is it okay if I say that? There are lots of people that think they know what this is. I have read dozens of theories. I could give you a list of a thousand names that they can make match this number. There's a lot of superstition around this number. Some of you are a little uncomfortable that it's like on the screen right now. If uh, there were any of the Chinese students here. Yeah, yeah. What does 666 say in Chinese? Very good luck. I learned that from Johnny yesterday, uh, Friday. Fascinating. Good fortune, right? It's a video game thing. When you kill somebody or somebody does something great in the video game, you go 666 and enter, right? Is that about right? Pretty close? Okay. Fascinating. This has been an occult symbol for thousands of years, thinking that this number has some sort of power, and it does have power. Here's the power it has. We're all afraid of it. Hebrews says that the devil keeps us in slavery through fear of death. I said that last week. That's the way it has power. Nobody knows what this is. There has never been in 2,000 years of the church writing about this any consensus on what this number is. Some of the earliest remarks are the craziest. Like the guys that knew John wrote really weird things about this number. So afterward, if you want to know, if you're curious about the three major categories of ways of dealing with 666 and what my best guess is, I'll be happy to stick around and talk about it with you afterwards. I just want to encourage you to be careful about guessing about this number and don't be too confident you have the right answer. Uh, here's the main point. 
The mark of the beast is given to those who worship the beast. The seal of God is given to those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. John came up with that on Tuesday. I thought it was beautiful. I'm going to dip into chapter 14 for just a second. The 144,000 sealed with the mark of God. These are the ones, 1411, who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Spoiler alert for next week's sermon. You can't have both marks. And it's never too late to receive the seal of God. Revelation 13 describes how the dragon makes war on the offspring of the woman. Remember last week how we conquer the dragon. And this is how we fight the beast as well. We keep the faith. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We obey his commands, not theirs. We love each other. We love everyone. We love we love those who we think might be under the, the thrall of the beast. We refuse to give in to the way the world tells us we should operate. We tell others about this Jesus. We might be killed for that, but that does not matter. What do these images teach us in Revelation 13? First, I think it teaches us fear no threats from any king who opposes God. Look back at verse 4. They, who's they? The whole world that was not written in the book of life. That's another important thing that I'll get into next week more. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast. Here's why they worshipped or bowed down or obeyed or kissed toward or paid homage to or whatever they did. They worshipped the beast. Why? Because who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? He's invincible. It's impossible to resist. Why even try? That's why they resist. That's why they worshiped. What's John's response in the very next uh, section, verse 9? If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. Church, listen up when John says, listen up. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. What does he say? This is a call for Christians to take up arms and make sure you defend yourself against the forces of the beast and hole up in bunkers so that you won't be taken into captivity or be killed with a sword. No! That's not what he says. He says, if anyone is, if it's written in the God's book, Psalm 139, that your days include being taken captive, that's what's going to happen. And if it's written in God's book that included in your days are being killed with a sword, that's what's going to happen. What does this call for? It calls for every, the same thing the rest of Revelation has been calling for, endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Some Christians throughout history and at the end, they might be threatened, imprisoned, or even killed by one of the beasts or the capital B beast. But that's all the beast can do to you. Do you believe that? Does, that? does that make sense? I said this last week as well because it was the same message. I just rewrote the message with different verses. That's the only thing it can do to you. And we should not be afraid of that because on the day that the beast kills us, we rise again to be in the presence of Christ. Don't you want that? And if you don't want that, you have some soul searching to do. If you don't want Christ more than anything this world has to offer you, you have some soul searching to do.
too believe no teacher who contradicts Jesus' teaching, no matter how wonderful and amazing and powerful their miracles might seem. People worshiped the beast because it seemed invincible. In Revelation 13, verse 14, people are deceived because of the signs that it is permitted to perform. What is John's response to this? Well, his readers would have already known his teaching on this, and we do too, because it's in 1 John 4 again. We read the first half. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Here's the test. Here's how you know. Here's how, you're not, here's how you don't get tricked by the false prophet, no matter what kind of miracles it seems to be performing. Here's how to not get tricked. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And by the way, John is using shorthand statements here because he doesn't want to write a 17-page letter. Shorthand that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh. That's shorthand for the entire gospel message, the entirety of the truth about Jesus Christ, including his trinity, his divinity, his resurrection, his second coming, all the truth about Jesus, the truth that John proclaimed very thoroughly in his gospel message. He's summarizing here in this, in this statement Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. If they do not affirm the book of John as the gospel message, and they have another gospel that they also add on, and it just clarifies everything if you have this other testament, or if they're saying, yeah, I mean, this is, this one, this is one good book. There's other good books too. They're not from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Verse 4, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. How do we know we've con we can conquer the dragon? How do we know we're going to be able to stand up to the beast? Because... Christian, if you are a believer in Christ and are banking on him for your salvation, his work, his death, his resurrection as payment, the only payment possible and the only payment needed for your rebellion against God and you worship him and as 1411 says, you follow him wherever he goes. Where did Jesus go? He preached. He was arrested for that. He was crucified for that. And he was buried for that. Are you going to follow him there? Because he didn't stop there. He rose for that. And that is where Christians who follow the Lamb, wherever he goes, get to do that too. They, these beasts, are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Who's the we? The apostles teaching the scriptures listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Saints, we can have courage in the face of horrific beasts. And in the face of fearsome powers they represent because we know we have a great champion watching over our souls in us. 
He's in us. We know to whom we belong. Find all of your security there in him. The beasts and the dragon. Interesting little detail I skipped. At the beginning of chapter 11, we see an image of a mighty angel from God standing on the sea and the land with a hand held to heaven, possibly an image of Jesus himself or the messenger of God, whoever that is, probably Jesus. He's standing on the sea and the land. These beasts can only stand on one at a time. The dragon's standing on the beach because he can't do both. The sea beast can't stand on the land at the same time. The land beast can't stand on the sea at the same time. They are smaller than God. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Find all your security in him. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these complicated and confounding images that have the church has been debating for 2,000 years and, and I'm adding my little nothing contribution here. Lord, I just pray that your word shines clearly through this and that the saints here would be able to discern truth and error. But Lord, it's so clear that you're the way we conquer. Lord, it's so clear that you are the savior of the world. That message is undeniable. It's so clear that you rose from the dead. It's so clear that you're coming again to rescue us. And it's so clear that we get to be with you forever. And Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters for courage in the meantime. Whether this all ramps up in the near future or in the far future, help us to stand firm, help us to persevere, help us to conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, holding fast to the faith that you are the true and risen Messiah. You are the, Lord, you are the true and risen Trinity. Help us to not be deceived by cheap copies. Grant us the spirit of discernment in our dealings with the world, in our going to Walmart, in our shopping on Amazon, in our voting, in our working, in our interactions with our neighbors, in our learning at class in our talking with our parents, Lord, would you help us discern truth from error and hold fast to the truth in Jesus' name. Amen.